This is the Marathon Running Podcast, episode number two. My guest today is Dr. Russ Pate. I sat down earlier today with Dr. Pate at his office in Columbia, South Carolina, and I got to hear about his time running for the Oregon Track Club under Coach Bill Bowerman. I got to hear about his work as an exercise physiologist. I got some training advice um, and lots more. Uh, the problem with this interview was that I only scheduled a one-hour meeting with Dr. Pate, and there was just too much to talk about. Um, so I have a little bio that I had written for him um, that I had planned on recording separately because of this. Um, so I wanted to read the bio to cover some things that we don't get to mention in the interview so before we listen to the interview, here's the prepared introduction. Dr. Pate is research professor in the Department of Exercise Science in the School of Public Health at the University of South Carolina. He began as a professor at USC in 1974 and has also held multiple administrative positions there, including department chair, associate dean for research, and vice provost. Before working at USC, Dr. Pate earned his master's and Ph.D. in exercise physiology from the University of Oregon. Uh, Dr. Pate started running competitively in high school, and he continued to train and race while completing his degrees and teaching. He has a marathon personal best of 2.15.20, which was at the 1975 Boston Marathon, where he finished 7th. He qualified for and competed at the U.S. Marathon Olympic Trials in 1972, 76, and 1980. For over 20 years, he served as president of the Carolina Marathon Association, which, under his leadership, hosted the U.S. Women's Marathon Olympic Trials in 1996 and 2000 in Columbia, South Carolina. His areas of interest are physical activity and fitness in youth, the public health implications of physical activity, and the physiology of endurance performance. He has been a member of the American College of Sports Medicine since 1979 and served as its president from 1992 to 1995, during which time he coordinated the effort between the American College of Sports Medicine and the CDC to produce official physical activity guidelines for Americans of all ages. The result of this was a landmark article published by the Journal of American Medical Association entitled Physical Activity and Public Health, a recommendation from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the American College of Sports Medicine. Dr. Pate has since remained an authority on physical activity and public health and is currently executive director of the National Physical Activity Plan Alliance, as well as member of the Physical Activity Guidelines Advisory Committee for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. His research has been supported by the National Institute of Health, the American Heart Association, CDC, as well as many other health foundations, government agencies, and private corporations. His published work includes over 350 articles, five of his own books, and 27 chapters in other various academic books. So like I said, 
we didn't get to go too deep into any one topic because the problem is he has his own incredible personal running story and then he has his own incredible body of research that he's done as an academic professional and I also wanted to talk to him about general running topics and health related topics so we started with his uh, own running career Uh, he told me about his time at the University of Oregon running for the um, Oregon Track Club we talked about his some of his academic career his research projects and then we got into some physiology and um, it kind of sounded like it was an extremely educated person talking to an uneducated person. Um, actually, that's exactly what it was. Maybe I can get back for a part two and follow up on some of these, but uh, just bear with some of my questions there. But Dr. Pate was very nice, very gracious, and did a great job answering my questions. Anyways, here's my interview with Dr. Russ Pate. Okay, Dr. Pate, thank you for being here. Nice to be with you, Joe. Thank you. Could you run us through your um, where you grew up and tell us about your running career through the point where you decided to go to Oregon for your graduate work? Yeah, I grew up in upstate New York uh, in a small city called Lockport, New York, which is in western New York near Buffalo, Niagara Falls. I started running as a high school freshman and... Uh, my father was my high school track coach, and uh, I, I was a miler in high school, and uh, they started cross-country while I was in high school, and uh, so I ran track and cross-country through high school, uh, moderately successful, you know, okay for the environment, and uh, I was a 440 miler in high school. That, that was that was about the as far as I got, and... Um, Went to Springfield College in Massachusetts as a as an undergraduate. Um, thought I was going to be a coach and do something in sport and physical education. Um, by good fortune, um, I, I um, was there at the same time as uh, several other uh, distance runners that I ran cross country and track with, who were about at my same level and uh, probably about at my same level of ambition. I mean, we, we wanted to be good, um, but we weren't enormously talented, but we, you know, we, we weren't schloggers either. And um, we ended up having a very good college division cross-country team. Uh, this was when the NCAA was, uh, you know, either university or college division, and we were we were a good um, you know, East Coast, New England, college division, cross-country team, won the college division of the IC4A one year, and uh, we sort of took turns being first, you know. I mean, we were all kind of in the same range, and, uh, you know, in the spring I ran, uh, you know, ran the mile and two mile on the track because those were the longest events, Um uh, before I finished, I dabbled in the in the uh, steeplechase a little bit. I ran the steeplechase and the pen relays two years, and sort of thought maybe I could be a steeplechaser. 
learning at that point that the longer and slower the race, the better for me. <laughs> and a steeplechase, at least at that time, was you know basically slower than you know either the mile or the two mile, and it felt better to me, you know. And uh, and that was about as far as I got. You know, I was sort of a mid to upper level college division college distance runner in New England um, but I was there at an interesting time um, you know I always tell the story I you know I met Bill Rogers when he was still in high school I had a college my parents moved to moved to Connecticut <clears throat> after I finished high school and I had a summer job uh, as a lifeguard and swimming teacher in uh, Newington Connecticut and did some summer runs with uh, you know some guys in Newington and Bill Rogers was one of them and when I was at Springfield we ran Wesleyan about five times a year and it was when Jeff Galloway and Amy Burfoot and Rogers were all there so and Shorter was down the road at Yale at that time and so Paul Thompson who's well known in my field now and you know in exercise medicine uh, you know was at Tufts and uh, so it was an interesting time, you know, to be to be in New England and uh, trying to be a distance runner. And I got uh, toward the end of my academic career at, at Springfield, decided I wanted to do graduate work in exercise physiology, and um, concurrently decided I wanted to keep running and see if I could get any better at it. And uh, uh, that you know the decision to go to Oregon turned out to be an easy one. Um, you know my uh, undergraduate exercise physiology professor had had uh, done his degree at his PhD at, at, at Oregon um, and um, <clears throat> Oregon had at that time one of the best known graduate programs in in my field and uh, that was um, late 60s which was the time when Oregon was really, beginning to be very well known in middle distance running circles and and uh, you know it was sort of just before that that you know Daryl Burleson and Dave Wilborn and you know that 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 generation of Oregon miler came through and they set the world record in the four four by one mile relay and at that by that point everybody knew who Bowerman was and you know there had been a number of Olympians from uh, you know, from Oregon. So, you know, it, it, Oregon worked for me both from an academic standpoint and, and from, a, from a running standpoint. So I applied, got in, got a good deal, drove across the country and showed up. So can you describe what it was like being a serious runner but not being an undergraduate there? What, what, was, the, what was it like being a part of the epicenter of running and that running culture at that time, and how how would you describe your place in that? How did you fit into it? Yeah, when I when I when I got to Eugene, I think I was really one of the first non Oregon undergraduates to show up and want to seriously train and run with the Oregon Track Club. And you know, when I got there, the Oregon Track Club was really <laughs> If it was a Venn diagram, it would be you know, almost totally overlapping, you know, with the U of O 
program. And, you know, there there were U of L graduates that stayed in Eugene and trained and, and you know, kind of migrated over to the Oregon Track Club. Um, <clears throat> but um, a guy named Billy Norris, who had been uh, it was quite a good steeplechaser from Boston College, was a year ahead of me. And um, I, I, I think I think Bill may have been, if not the first, but certainly one of the very first, you know, sort of non-Oregonians to just sort of migrate to Eugene to train and compete. And he was a very good steeplechaser. And, uh, and uh, you know, there had been steeplechasers, you know, there were Oregonians, who, you know, who, who, were, who were there and very good. Mike Manley showed up about the same time. And uh, so it was right, right at the time, late 60s, when people sort of were becoming aware of Eugene as a place to train and live. And um, <clears throat> that's about the time I showed up. And kind of after that, that, that sort of became a became a trend. So were you officially part of the Oregon Track Club? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I, and, and I, you know, I will say, I always count them. I mean, honestly, I can remember being a little nervous about just showing up and saying, here I am. But I, I had corresponded with Bowerman before I went out. And uh, I think somewhere in a file folder, I, I may still have the letter he wrote back to me. But he, he, yeah, one thing you don't hear much about Barman, he really thought of himself as an academic. You know, this was at a time when, and, and of course, most of his career, you know, it was a time when, when um, you know, very few coaches in universities only coached, right? A lot of them taught PE classes and so on, and Bowerman had done that. And and uh, so, you know, I, I don't remember verbatim the letter, but I mean, it was, you know, congratulations on your admission to the, you know, the graduate, you know, it was, it was really sort of an academically oriented letter. And, um, <clears throat> but when I showed up, you know, I, I went out, introduced myself to him, reminded me, Reminded him of who I was, and uh, uh, you know, he just basically said, "Go for it," you know. And so I jumped in, and uh, I, you know, I will say the guy, the guys were very welcoming. You know, I, I, I was nervous about it, and and I was partly nervous about wondering whether I could keep up or not, <laughs> and partly just you know, I'm kind of a shy guy in the first place, and and wasn't really sure whether I would be, you know, accepted and so on. And, and uh, they were great, you know. I mean, they were very welcoming and, you know, I, it it, uh, it was a great experience, you know. So you mentioned the Venn diagram of Oregon Track Club overlapping with University of Oregon guys. And this is about the same time Steve Prefontaine is coming to Oregon. So was most of your training with, you know, the University of Oregon team, yeah. And were you? Yeah, when I was first there, uh, yeah, I I was uh, <clears throat> I, I was there for a year, and then I got drafted, and I was gone for two years in the army, and uh, I was on the west coast. I was I was stationed at Fort Ord, and then I I I did get to run with the army track team and cross country team. The second year I was in the army, and I was you know, stationed in Fort MacArthur. So I got to Eugene every chance I could get there, you know, during during that two-year period to stay connected and so on. Um, but um, yeah, the first the first year I was there was Prefontaine's senior year in high school, in Coos Bay, 
And um, <clears throat> of course, everybody knew about him uh, by then, you know, because as, as a junior, he set records and, you know, really, really kind of hit the front page. And um, yeah, I saw it. In fact, I, I in the in the book pre uh, a picture I shot of him in the Oregon State High School track meet was published because I, I got into photography and I I used to just send contact prints to track and field news and occasionally they'd print one you know sort of recreation but um, yeah he he was um, he was a high school senior <clears throat> event you know eventually signed out you know there was this sort of tap dance that was going on between him and Bowerman where Bowerman used like to pretend he didn't recruit and <laughs> Prefontaine wanted to be recruited <laughs> right. finally Bowerman called him and said you know we'd really like you to come and that took care of that but uh, yeah so he Prefontaine arrived in Eugene while I was gone in the army and by the time I came back <clears throat> you know he was a worldwide hero uh by that point and um but yeah no i i I, um you know it it was really while i was gone in the army that i transitioned to the marathon and so when i was first there i jumped in trained with the guys and and um you know then i was gone for two years trained basically on my own when i came back I, i really by then decided I was a marathoner and so I you know I trained with others there that were marathoners I mean Ron Wayne and I trained together a good bit and and uh, uh, Tom Ratliff who ended up being a lifelong friend um, he and I had been on the army track team together we were two of the three members of the army marathon team that won the national championship in in Eugene uh, and he he migrated after he got out of the army. He migrated to Eugene, and we lived together and trained together. So, uh, <clears throat> but you know, at that point, I was really no longer thinking I'm a steeplechaser and you know trying to train on the track with you know with the with the you know the middle distance runners that were there. So, how did you decide to move to South Carolina? And when you made that move, how did your running life change? Because I mean, you're kind of moving away from the running epicenter to you know what mm-hmm. was that transition like? Yeah, I went in the job, graduated, you know, and finished my PhD, and went in the job market, and um, um, <clears throat> you know, thought this was the best job available, and I think I was right. <laughs> you know, I you know it. it uh, you know, it, it's turned out to be a very good place for me professionally. And, uh, um, <clears throat> but, you know, I, I was not disinclined to come back to the East Coast. Uh, and I remember thinking, you know, that would be fine. I wasn't anxious to leave Eugene. Uh, but, you know, you, you don't really get to stay in, you know, at the university that you, you know, you did your degree program at, particularly when, you know, it's a it's a small to medium sized city, and you know, you're not really going to get a job, you know, there. And and so, you know, I was professionally motivated, and I was I was going to go somewhere. And uh, you know, I I I was not going to go somewhere where I didn't think I could train. Um, 
but uh, I thought I could train here. And, and it, I didn't know it at the time, but I think at the, right at the time when I was <clears throat> moving here, which was 1974, it, it turned out that that was my peak, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I think I, you know, I think I benefited from what I did in Eugene, you know, while I was while I was a graduate student, and and I think that sort of got me to my peak, which I, after I got here, I sustained, I think, for a few years. Um, so I was, before we met, I was scrolling through all the published work you have listed, and it seems like there was sort of a trend, um, because now you're really focused on physical activity as it relates to youth, especially, and public mm-hmm. health. That's right. Um but it seems like there were more. There was more work earlier in your career relating to um, distance running and you know physiology of elite runners and that sort of things. And yep. not that that ever necessarily stopped, but it seemed to be more heavily tilted in that direction earlier in your career. Can you talk a little bit about what kinds of studying you were doing, what kinds of projects you were involved in yeah. earlier on? Yeah, I trained in in um, pretty much traditional exercise physiology and my my interest really was always uh, endurance performance um, you know I did our I did a rat dissertation but it, it was it was the, a rat model for blood doping and which had sort of seeped out of Scandinavia <laughs> you know and and uh, so I was I was uh, you know very interested in hemoglobin concentration and manipulations of hemoglobin concentration and how that influences performance and how it influences performance in women versus men and uh, so that's what I was interested in when I when I left Oregon and came here and I you know when I when I got here I set up a physiology biochemistry lab and you know launched into that that kind of research I was really endurance performance Kind of with a hematology spin on it, um, and that and that's really what I was what was doing. I was always interested in in uh, in, in kids. Um, I think going back to when I was at Springfield and and Oregon, I'd been exposed to um, you know really the science on on fitness in children and and. Uh, and when I got here, one of the first professional activities I got involved in had to do with, um, you know, designing a, a, a new approach to measuring physical fitness in kids in the field and so on. And uh, <clears throat> so I, I really had kind of parallel interests for a while with the emphasis on endurance physiology and endurance performance. Um, I got to the point after a few years where... Um, I decided that um, I, I really wanted to pursue a research career that would involve federal research funding and NIH funding and that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I, I figured out after a while that to be competitive for that kind of funding, um, you've got to be very specialized. And I, I just, at that point, made a calculated decision. As much as I enjoyed the physiology, and I still had graduate students that I did that with for you know for for some time after that. That <clears throat> if I was going to be funded to study physical activity and fitness in kids, um, you know, I was going to have to specialize in it. And um, 
and so I did, and I think um, it, I think it worked. Yeah. Um, I saw a photo of you at the uh, the famous Kenneth Cooper study from 1975, standing on a field with yeah. all the other athletes he had there: Pre Fontaine, Frank Shorter, Kenny Moore, and mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other ones. But I didn't. I wasn't able to find out what exactly your role in that was. Were you one of the athlete subjects, or were you? Yeah. Yeah. What was what was that study all about? Yeah, Mike Pollock <clears throat> was really the one that organized that study, and, and Mike was the um, you know, kind of the director of the lab at at um, you know at, at what is, you know what is now the Cooper Institute and uh, you know the Aerobics Institute at that time, and uh, um, he decided that there 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 would be. Um, important work to do that would be essentially a descriptive comparison of elite distance runners, which I think in his mind he split into longer distance runners and and kind of shorter distance runners. Um, but as compared with um, you know good college runners. And so there was a reference group in the study that I think was like the cross-country team from North Texas State. And, um, you know, what was unique about the study was, uh, you know, the, certainly partly the caliber of the athletes that, that we got there. Uh, we did it right after Christmas. We did it in early January in, in Dallas. cold, I remember. And, um, and, and um, you know, we were there for... It was like a long weekend, maybe three, four days. And he had put together this very comprehensive protocol you know, where we did every imaginable. I mean, we did the typical maximal treadmill test and, you know, maximal oxygen uptake measures and all that. But, um, you know, hydrostatic weighing for body composition and, uh, you know, Peter Cavanaugh was there and did the whole... <clears throat> soup to nuts biomechanical analysis and and um, Bill Morgan was there and did psychological testing and interviews and you know all of that so I mean it was a very comprehensive descriptive study and and if you've ever seen it but it was it was it was published as a set of papers in the uh, New York Academies of Science and and one thing that would never happen today but we we we'd, uh, we'd all consented to have our names included so i mean the, the numbers are all published by <laughs> by name so i mean you can see what shorter's vo2 max was versus you know everybody else's his wasn't very high right but enormous you know incredibly efficient you know and uh so it was an interesting experience um kenny moore played a played a i i think played a role with with pollock in sort of uh, identifying athletes that that he would get there I, I was here. I'd just been here a few months, and um, <clears throat> my colleague Steve Blair, who'd been here for several years before then, happened to be on the phone with Pollock when I walked in his office one morning. And Steve said, "Hey, you need paid to be in this study." I knew Mike because I'd interviewed with him for a postdoc, and um, if I hadn't gotten this job or a you know a, a faculty job, I, I might well have gone to. Santa Barbara and work for Mike Pollock, but uh, um, so I knew Mike, and so anyway, I got invited to be be one of the one of the athletes in the study. So was the point to just 
to just point out the differences in these physiological markers, like resting heart rate, all these things, and just see what they are, or to determine if there's some kind of inherent difference in the people themselves? I think, realistically, what you can do with that kind of a cross-sectional design is just... You describe this group and you compare them with that group. So just see how much better these guys are than the and average, and, basically. And within the group, how variable are are right. these different factors? Right? Yeah. Um, in the first episode of this, I was talking to Jeff Milliman, and he actually brought up that study making the point that Prefontaine's VO2 max was a good bit higher than Frank Shorter's, but... Frank Shorter. A lot higher. Shorter's was one of the lowest in the group, and yet he won the Olympic marathon. And so Jeff's point was that efficiency in running makes a huge difference. It's not just the size of your engine, particularly in the marathon. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, So you mentioned that right about the time you were moving to South Carolina was roughly your peak, and your personal best in the marathon was 1975 at Boston. You ran 2.15.20, I think it was. That personal best you ran that year, was that kind of a standout performance for you, or was that sort of just one of many comparable marathons you'd run? No, I'd say that was a standout. Because okay. um, I saw that you, I thought you had also I, run maybe 2.16 once I or did, twice. I, I did. I ran, I, I, two years later, I ran, I think, 2.17 and finished 10th. You know, so, I, I mean, I had a... I had a period there of, a, you know, like in most people end up with, you know, retrospectively, you know, I had a few years where I, I was kind of pretty much at the same level, but that, that day was uh, perfect, you know. Mm. I mean, I, I think it was, it, partly I was ready and, and uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I think I was ready to have a good day, but the conditions were very good for everybody, but they, they were probably particularly good for me. A little bit of a tailwind, and uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> I, 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 I was always a, a better uphill runner than downhill runner, and and uh, I think that probably I always did pretty well at Boston, and I think Boston, just the course at Boston, was a good fit for me. Um, yeah, no, I mean that was that was that was Roger's breakthrough year, you know. And <laughs> I was like, I remember when he went by, you know, <laughs> it was like, looks good, yeah. And and uh, <laughs> but um, you know, a couple, couple years later, I passed him. It was a hot day, and he he never did well in the heat, and uh, I, I was worried about him. I thought, hey, not good, <laughs> you know. So uh, yeah, no, it was it was. Um, you know, it, you know, if if you if you run competitively for a long time, you occasionally have days where it it just all falls together. You know, and we all <laughs> savor those days. You know, because there aren't that many of them, and that, that happened to be one for me. You know, it just felt really good. And you also ran the Olympic trials three different times: seventy-two, seventy-six, and eighty. Yeah, what never, were those days I, like? Yeah, I never, I, I never had a good race. Um, it, it uh, <clears throat> you know, I think um, I, w- I was overtrained for seventy-two. I think, I, I think I was ready to run really well, and um, I got it in my head that I was going to do this series of um, long runs, 
and I think I went, you know, I was doing one every Sunday, and, and I ended up doing one that was like 30 miles, and I, you know, in retrospect, made a mistake, because I, I had run, I think it was a 30K <coughs> race somewhere in southern Oregon, you know, in the spring, before <laughs> I did a couple of these longest long runs. And it, it, it felt like Boston, and this was earlier, but, you know, it felt that good. You know, it just felt really good. And um, I think had I not overtrained, I you know, and, and just kind of gone into the 72 trials ready to do my best, I think I could have done pretty well. But live and learn, you know. And uh, 76, I should have been able to, probably do better than I ended up doing I, you know I went in feeling you know I'm, I'm competing here and uh, <clears throat> you know I was in trials were in Eugene I, I, I remember vividly we were out kind of in the kind of highways out north of Eugene and kind of made a turn and we're coming back in and it felt okay but not you know not great felt alright and uh, yeah Cardong and sidekick from Stanford came by you know and it was just like at that point you know you know some some guys have got it today and some don't you know and it, it just I slogged it in it was all right but and then I, I was I was probably past my peak in in 80 uh race was in Buffalo but 15 miles from where I grew up and my a buddy of mine was the race director so I was sort of ready to try it but uh you know, I realistically, I was I was probably past my prime by then. So looking back at those peak years, how would you assess the training you did for the marathon after having all this knowledge yeah. and research yeah. and everything? Yeah, I think I think I I don't have a lot of um, second thoughts and reservations about the way I trained. Um, I. You know, I, I I think I gradually got a little smarter about you know just how much I could handle and what I needed. You know, um, I think um, you know I could. Uh, I, I think a strength of my training was um, I, I, I was able to be be consistent. Um, I didn't get hurt a lot. I didn't weigh very much, and and. Um, uh, <clears throat> And I and I you know how you get you get very sensitive to your body. I mean you really, you know you really feel your body and and I could do about ninety five a week and be fine. And if I tried to do more than that, I you know I'd get a knee pain or something you know and or tired. And I remember out in Shandon one time I, I was doing my morning run and I stubbed my toe on a crack in the sidewalk and scraped myself all up and. It was because I was tired, you know. You know, you just you, you lose your you know, skill a little bit, and uh, but you know, I I I think I you know it, at the time I was doing it, you know, I mean there were people running more than that, and and you know Tom Fleming ran more than that, and you know shorter I think was able able probably Kenny or were probably able to run more than that at time. I don't know that they did it for long periods, but at least for some periods they you know, they they did a lot and Galloway ran ran a lot of miles for a while. 
Um, <clears throat> but I think they could. They did it because they could do it. You know, I mean, they could tolerate. Their bodies would tolerate it. And I, you know, I mean, it's nice to say you run 120 miles a week, but if you're going to get hurt doing it, you know, it's not accomplishing anything. So I, I think I did about what I could do. I think, you know, it's possible that if I were still in Eugene or in a place where I had a bunch of training partners, um, might have helped. I don't know. You know, when I came here, I, I, most of my training was alone. And, uh, you know, I did do some running with other people, but it wasn't my real training running. It was just miles running, you know. But, uh, um, you know, I, you know. I don't have a lot of reservations about whether I trained trained well or not. I think I I did about yeah, sure. what I could do. And There's another runner from around here in Columbia, uh, Rob is it Delvin or Devlin. Devlin. Yeah. Um, I heard, and I don't know if you remember this, but I heard a story about one time he was, you know, he would be younger than you, and um, and he qualified for the trials once and think it was done a handful of marathons, sub two thirty. But I I heard a story that he came to you one time for training advice. And showed you his training log. Do you remember something yeah, like this? I, I, yeah, I, I, I helped him for a year or two. Um, you know, with with uh, preparing for the trials that he ran in in Pittsburgh. Um, and um, yeah, I you know I, I you know I think I think the advice I gave I gave Rob and and um, you know others that I've helped a little bit over the years. It, Basically, was aimed at be consistent. Don't over race. Don't race for the sake of winning twenty bucks or you know, a trophy or something. You know, I mean, if you race strategically, race for a reason, right? If your goal is optimize your performance in a marathon or a particular marathon, then you, you've got to organize your your whole program around that particular goal. And and uh, uh, <clears throat> so I generally advise people to race less. Make sure you're getting the long run in. Make sure you're getting a couple of runs faster than race pace in. Um, you know, organize yourself so that you're peaking at the right time. When you get to that time, you're healthy, rested, not overtrained. Right. Well, something I heard that. Uh, um, having to do with that story is that uh, he showed Rob showed you his training log and asked, you know, I don't know whether I should add more volume or more intensity, and you said both. <laughs> but yeah. I don't know if that. Yeah, is no, I, no I, I, I could well have said that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this is back to Oregon, but um, I vividly remember when I when I first arrived. And I already told you I was nervous about whether I was going to be able to handle this or not. Um, what what struck me immediately, I mean, within the first week that I was there and jumped in and tagged along, was how easy the easy days were and how hard the hard days were. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think my training up to that point had been... Uh, Hard, hard, hard. <laughs> you know, pretty much every every time we trained, we trained hard. Mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, I, it, it it blew me away. I mean, I, I remember going out the first day with them was an easy day, and I kept thinking, when is this going to start? 
you know. I mean, we were just jogging, you know. It felt like it, and <laughs> that was it, you know. And then the next day, you know, you know, I think I needed help getting home, you know, because it, it was hard, you know. But um, I, I, I remember we did one. It was a fairly recurring workout uh, <clears throat> that was, you know, go go run two or three miles to warm up, come back four times three quarters with a quarter in between, go out for another two or three miles, come back three times a mile, step down. And, you know, I'd, never done, I'd never done anything like that, no. you know, and... Um, but it, but, but they could do it. I mean, we could do it because we were rested when we did it. Right. You know, we hadn't run hard the day before, and we weren't going to run hard the next day. Yeah. yeah. So when it comes to the marathon, uh, <clears throat> I'd like to get your opinion on this. Do you think it's accurate to say that teaching your body to burn fat more efficiently is kind of the top number one challenge in being successful in the marathon? Because obviously you have to be fit, but just... As it is that the main thing that makes the marathon different in your mind? Well, it's important. Yeah, I, you know, um, and I and I do think that the training that you do have to do <laughs> to to optimize your performance in the marathon uh, certainly does involve adaptation in the fat metabolic pathways. Um, yeah, because you you know you've got a, you've got a finite capacity to store carbohydrate. Um, you know, I think we know that when it's gone, you're gone, and so sparing, you know, that that glycogen store as long as you can, allows you to continue to expend energy at a you know at a high percentage of your maximum, and so, you know, the more adapted you are for for fat metabolism. You know, on an extended period, um, you know, the greater your ability to to spare the glycogen, gradually use it, not run out of it until you're near the end of the race. It seems like most people pretty much plan on refueling themselves during a marathon. Do you think that most people with the right training could um, be able to race an entire marathon? Um, sparing the carbs without having to re-ingest new carbohydrates? Do you think, I think most it, people can get to I that think, level? I think it helps a little to do it. <clears throat> um, and, and the benefit may, may be more um, avoidance of brain fatigue than muscle fatigue mm. because it, it helps to maintain your blood glucose level and your, you know, your brain and central nervous system really can only function with you know with a carbohydrate energy right. source and and so um, I think to the extent that getting the carbohydrate in um, you know may, may you know may may avoid may may slow um, depletion of muscle glycogen that would that would also be productive in the same way that enhanced you know, fat metabolic capacity would be productive, but I think it, I think it may be more keeping that blood glucose level up. And you know, I mean, we, my colleague here, Mark Davis, was one of the landmark researchers in the, that whole area of you know, sort of basically avoidance of brain fatigue. Right. I've never really thought about it that way. Use 
using the carbs to feed your brain as opposed to the direct running muscles. Because um, I've always thought, wow, if you're trying to take in sugary drink or, you know, some kind of gel or something while you're running, you know, I've kind of seen the diagrams. I'm not a scientist or anything. It seems like a long way to get all the way through the different parts and all the way to the muscles. Like, So yeah, it can not, happen pretty yeah, quickly, you're saying. Yeah, we're not very good at that. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, if if that worked, then we we never deplete glycogen, right? You know, at, at the end of the race, but we do, right? Right. Uh, so yeah. So exactly just, where when you when someone's taking in, you know, say a Gatorade or something, mile twenty two, where does it go exactly? Like, well, you know, yeah, it goes to your gut. You're going to absorb it out of your gut into the circulation, and it's going to, you know, I mean, it's going to flow throughout the body, but. You know, I think I think it's your nervous system that's really going to benefit from having it because what you don't want is you know liver glycogen to deplete and your blood glucose level to fall as a result of that, right? Because then you're going to feel fatigued mm. <laughs> in addition to probably actually incurring muscle fatigue. So the body is it accurate to say the body is going to use any glucose in the blood before it goes to the liver for for more fuel? Yeah, I don't think of it as sequential. I mean, I think of it as the, these things all happen right. kind of concurrently. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you think people depend too much on refueling during marathons versus training for fat ap- adaptation? Well, I think you have to do both. I mean, you know, in in, in this day and age, we know so much more about how to do some of these things than we probably did, you know, when I was competing. Um, And, and, um, you know, I think at at the highest level in the marathon, I mean, in this day and age, as fast as they run uh, and, and, you know, know, as, as the, you know, unbelievable training that they do, you got to do all those things, you know. Right. I think to to stay healthy and perform well. Are there any misconceptions that you have seen throughout the years popularized about marathon training or racing, as from the perspective of a scientist? Well, I think there's probably a broad sense that more is better, and <laughs> I, you know, I I, I I think it is true that. Um, you know the the most highly competitive marathoners these days do in fact tolerate more running than people did when I when I was competing, <clears throat> um, and I think it's partly because they have more assistance and you know knowledge and and um, you know various interventions that, that help with that. Um, but um, you know I. I don't know that I think there are a whole lot of mysteries. I mean, I, I mean the the vast majority of the top twenty-five or fifty marathoners in the world these days are from what Northeast Africa, and and uh, they are built for it. You know, they are just built to do this, and you know they've got these tiny little spindly legs, and a lot of the energy that you expend is when you're running involves moving that leg rotationally around your hip and the lighter that limb is 
and the smaller the percentage of your overall body weight that it represents, um, the more efficient you're going to be. And I mean, these people are <laughs> incredibly efficient. So you mentioned the 95 mile mark per week for you was sort of your max you could tolerate. Um, so now speaking as, as someone who's you know, instrumental in creating guidelines for Americans for physical, physical activity levels, um, how, how do you look at running as a physical activity in terms of public health and what kind of recommendations like, how do you think running fits into the physical activity guidelines? Well, um, you know, if I'm asked what, you know, what, what, what form of activity should you do to meet federal physical activity guidelines, my answer is the one that you will actually do. Right? <laughs> so I think, I think it all comes down to how the individual fits with a particular form of activity. And if, if you like running, you do well with running, you feel good when you run, you feel good after you run, um, then I think running is a great activity and, and you know, a great way to maintain an active lifestyle and meet physical activity guidelines. But um, you know, we all know running's not for everybody. And, and uh, you know, there, and I think most people find out pretty quickly <laughs> yeah. which category they're in, right? Sure. And, and um, <clears throat> you know, I, I know a lot of people, you know, who are runners for a long time, um, and they always, if, if, if for some reason they're, they have an injury or something, or they, they're not able to run anymore, they invariably say the same thing, which is, God, I miss running. <laughs> and and you know I've I've adapted you know I you know I, I do spin or I cycle on the road or I swim or I you know I, I found another activity then and it's okay but it's not running <laughs> you know and and um, so you know I think in a public health sense um, you know what what I hope for is um, you know the greatest possible percentage of the population finding an act form of activity that they enjoy they're reinforced with uh, they have easy access to and they will in fact engage in it uh, regularly so for the for people, some people that's running for a lot of people it's another form of activity sure so for the people that do love running whether you're talking about amateur runners mm -hmm. um, just trying to you know run their first marathon or all the way up to elite runners, mm -hmm. for those people, is there a, just for, you know, thinking of health benefits, mm -hmm. um, is there a point of diminishing <coughs> returns yeah, that running no, has? Sure, sure. Like, is it is it healthy to yeah, try to be an elite not, athlete? I think it's not unique to running, but I mean, I yeah, sure. I mean, we, we know that the, you know, sort of the, the investment versus health benefit uh, relationship uh, is not linear, right? So a, a great deal of the benefit goes from being inactive to moderately active. And after that, it's diminishing returns. And, mm -hmm. and there may be some additional benefit, you know, as you get out on that right. high end of the activity uh, continuum. But, um, you know, as people in my business say, you know, if you, 
you know, if you're, if you're doing that much, you're doing it for some reason other than health. Sure. Right? And that, that's true. I mean, I, right. I, I wasn't competing to enhance my health. I, I think it did. <laughs> I'm glad it did. You know, I'm glad I, you know, able to run for a long time and all that. And because I, I do think it provides a health benefit. But when I was competing, it, it was not for the purpose of sure. promoting my health. Sure. Okay, well, we're about to wrap up here. Um, I'd like to ask you one more question, and that's, um, in all your years, has any research project you've done ever surprised you with the results or changed your mind about something? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think a lot of the <clears throat> the work that we've done on, on, on physical activity in kids, um, you know, ha, ha, has been based in, in community settings, schools or, you know, elsewhere in the community. And, um, you know, the, the, the first little small study that we did that was really sort of public health oriented, it was out in the community in Fairfield County, um, you know, I think I and my colleagues learned 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 a lot from that experience, and it it is that um, you know people's activity behavior is um, it's complicated. <laughs> you know? I mean, you you can think of it as simple, um, and I suppose in some ways it is. You know, in in America, we're all you know we're all about personal responsibility and. Independence, and you know, and and I'm involved in a project right now that's sort of documenting this. You know, at the at the national level, people tend to think of this as, um, you know, if you're active, it's because you're um, you decide to be active and you take charge of it and control it, and you do, you know, you you're active because you control it and do it, and uh, you know, there's, there's certainly truth to that. But you know, I think we learned the hard way that uh, you know, trying to help kids be more active is something that is influenced by a lot of factors, some of which ostensibly would have absolutely nothing to do with exercise or physical activity. It's like who are they riding on the bus with, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and and you know who are their adult role models, and you know what is their what's the physical environment that they live in, and. You know, is it safe or not? And you know, will their mother let them out of the house? And and um, you know, what are the sedentary distractors around them? So I mean, I think I think early in our work, you know, we we got sensitized to um, this is this is not an easy undertaking. <laughs> Physical activity may seem like a simple behavior, but it isn't. <laughs> it's influenced by a lot of factors. And there's just no nat- no magic bullet. You know, there's just no one thing you can do, and and the, with the result being a previously inactive person becomes an active person. You know, it's a it's a more complex behavior than that. Right. Well, Dr. Russ Pate, thanks so much. My pleasure. Nice to be with you. <laughs>